My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, I want to welcome you uh, once again to Providence Road, and uh, it is really glad to be with you this morning, especially if you're a guest. We're honored that you would choose to spend a Sunday morning worshiping with us. And we are in week six of an eight-week series that we're calling The True and Better Story, The True and Better Story. And this is a a series that um, theologians would call a biblical theology, meaning that we're looking at the scriptures really from beginning to end and really looking at it as a story, which it is, made up of 66 books, uh, but it is one comprehensive story about God revealing himself to um, humanity. I was explaining this uh, this week to, to someone, and I think it's a good explanation of why we're doing this. Um, if you think about, think of a closet, and um, oftentimes when we're doing our own quiet time, reading in our own scripture, even doing sermon series over specific books of the Bible, um, you can think that as like a hanger. And sometimes it's, it's helpful to, to have a closet built out, right, and a rod there. And so when you have, you come across books, you come across something in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, or you're reading something in the Psalms, or you're reading something in the Gospels, you can have this kind of mental framework of a closet and where to hang those different things. So if you know that the whole of the Bible, it's a little bit easier as we go along to understand where different things fit in this story, instead of just having a, a, a pile of clothes, to continue that metaphor, laying there, not really knowing how these, all these things fit together. So that's the, the value of doing a series like this. Now, last week we looked at um, the Exodus, where God re- rescues his people out of Egypt. And he rescues them from Egypt, parts the Red Sea, and then once they get on the other side, Egypt is done, Pharaoh is no longer a threat, and then he gives them the law shortly thereafter. And giving, giving of the law is an act of grace um, that shows them how to flourish, the way of flourishing moving forward for a people of God. And now they're not deserving of this. They still struggle to love God wholeheartedly. They're still grumbling every chance they can get because things aren't exactly perfect as they imagined when they got out of Egypt. And we actually saw last week that this is often us, right? We grumble. We complain. We don't trust God. In the moment, we have trouble trusting God, and we forget to think back of all the ways that he's been faithful to us and allowing that to help us trust God in the present. After 40 years, God raises up a man named Joshua to finally lead the the Israel out of the wilderness across the Jordan into what the Bible refers to as the promised land. This land um, flowing with milk and honey that God has provided for them to to make their home as a people. God rescued them out of slavery and into the safety of their own land. But the cycle of rebellion continues. Uh, rather than worshiping God, they quickly began to, um, to, to worship other idols and fall into this idea of not trusting God and trusting other things. And over the next several centuries, they would fall further and further away from God who rescued them and delivered them. But God is still on his mission. And even though God has shown himself to be God and a faithful God and even a, a king if, if they wanted to use that language of God, but they didn't. So they cried out for a human king. They wanted to be like the other nations and said, we, we want somebody physical that we can see and that we can worship and we can honor. So God says, okay, against um, their better judgment, he's like, okay, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you a human king. 
And one of these kings was David. And out of all the kings, he was uh, probably the most faithful. Uh, Scriptures call him a man after God's own heart. He brought the nation together, did some great things as king, also did some shameful things as king. And as David was about to die, God made a covenant with David that said one of his sons will eventually reign over God's people forever. And we know that to be Jesus. Now, to David and Goliath, this story of David, which I'm sure most of us have heard of, even if you're not a churchgoer, if you haven't been in church super long um, or ever, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath, or at least heard it um, referenced. Um, and this is a story that really um, encapsulates really a lot of that time period when Israel was looking to their own king um, to save them, right? And when we've heard, of, if, you've, if you remember and think about David and Goliath, you probably think, um, and maybe you've heard it taught this way, that um, this story is about the underdog. It's about the underdog, it's about the little guy winning, and that's true to some extent, right? And the story also could be about, you know, facing your own giants, Right? In the story, you're David, you should have boldness, you should have cur- courage to fight the giants in your life. So, get, so, so, so be courageous, uh, suck it up, and be like David. And those things are somewhat true and are principles that c- could be drawn for th- from this, but that is not the point of David and Goliath. That is not the reason why this is in the scriptures. Right? The reason this is in the scriptures is because David is a type of Christ. When we read about David, the scriptures, God wants us to see forward to Jesus. Think about it. You have David, right? A surprising hero, small in stature, was the last of Jesse's sons, was the one that you said, no way this guy can be king. No way this guy will be chosen by the prophet to be king, and yet he is chosen. He rises up. He is an unlikely hero, the same as Jesus, and you have Goliath and the Philistines who God's people were terrified of, and rightfully so from a human standpoint, right? And this story, the, 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 the Philistines and Goliath are to represent sin, Satan, and death, and our flesh, and the things that, 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 that hold us back, and the things that enslave us. And then you have the Israelites, right? The rest of the Israelites outside of David, scared, faith, faithless, fearful, afraid, weak, purposelessness, hopeless, and that is meant to describe us oftentimes, right? And David represents that he, he's stepping forward and he is representing, he's part of God's people, right, like Jesus is, and he is representing uh, God's people to the whole. He's fighting the battle on behalf of Israel. If David loses, they lose. If David wins, they win, right? So, so God's people are kind of brought along with David in his victory. So when we see David, we're supposed to see Jesus. Not we're the hero, Jesus is David, we're the Israelites who are dependent upon one to save us from the things um, that that come across anything really in our life, but primarily sin, sin, Satan, and death. Now after David, David's sons did not follow after their father uh, for the most part, and they didn't follow God. They began to turn to the gods of the other nations around them, and they rebelled. Because of their rebellion, God brought other nations in to conquer them. First it was the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. All at one point or another um, captured, um, some of them enslaved, um, exiled, at at minimum minimized them, pushed them to the margins. um, And it didn't seem for a while that God did anything to stop them. 
if we're just reading the scriptures. We're like, God, where are you at? Are you going to help your people? Have you forgotten about them? Have you left them? But God was still on his mission, right? During the exile, God brought the prophets. He gave them a great promise that one day he would come and rescue his people. One day I'm coming, and he gave them the prophecies of Jesus. He would send a mighty yet humble servant to redeem them, similar to King David, but better than King David. And so at this point, God's people are left waiting and longing and hoping for that day when God would come to rescue them. 400 years passed um, from the last writings of the Old Testament into the beginning of the Gospels and the New Testament. 400 years of waiting. That's a long time. Think about that in just terms of our country, right? Like that is 400 years is a long time for God to be silent. And then God sends Jesus, right? The true and better king, the one spoken of about being in the line of David, right? And Jesus fulfills the covenant of God through his sin, through his life, death, and resurrection, and overcoming sin. This is the way that Jesus keeps the covenant of God. Now, I want to go to 1 Peter 1. This is the, the verses that Logan read. And I chose this passage because I think it, it really captures really well this idea of Jesus coming. First off, Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus, right? One of his closest disciples, right? This is the very first part of, of Peter's first letter that he wrote, right? So what he has to say is, is kind of right there on, on, the, on the forefront of his mind. And this was primarily written to a Jewish audience in Jerusalem, what Peter's about to write. So these are people who really understood the Old Testament, really understood the narratives, really understood this, this long awaiting for the Messiah. So this is a really good I think, passage to look at because Peter is speaking to people who he's expecting and assuming understand the story. So let's look at 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 13, and then we'll skip over to verse 18. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that, we will, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's, he's, he's written, it really is intro to the letter in the first 12 verses, talked about the gospel, talked about what it looks like to live um, and follow God in day-in-to-day-out life. And then he says, therefore, <clears throat> because of that, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Ransom there is important, right? That's redeemed, saved, right? Same idea as ransomed. He says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, right? And in these verses, you see that God sends Jesus, the true and better king, to keep the covenant, who fulfills the covenant through his life, death, and resurrection. Okay, so let's look at those three things, right? His life, his death, and his resurrection, right? His life, right? His life. There's not many better, not many examples better than Jesus's life that encompassed Jesus's life than Matthew 4. Matthew 4. And Jesus is here is king. Remember, he's come as king. He hasn't really manifested himself in this way, but looking back, we know that he would become king, right? And he's going to be in the, in, 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 the, in the desert here, kind of battling Satan with the temptation, okay? And as I read this, I want you to read this really with kind of through two lenses. One, thinking about Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve, and seeing the parallels between Adam and Eve's temptation. 
And I also want you to see um, just how this, how this applies to our current day in and day out life as we kind of push back against our sin and Satan and our flesh. It's super practical if we allow it and read it that way. Okay, let's look at verse one. That Jesus was led up, notice that, he was led up by the Spirit, okay, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So at this point, Jesus didn't, I mean, Satan didn't initiate this like he did in Genesis 3, right? The Spirit is initiating this. God is initiating this by a Spirit, by, by, by taking Jesus out into the wilderness. And the whole purpose of this, it says, to be tempted by the devil. So God fully knew what was about to happen here. He takes Jesus out to the wilderness, or you could say the desert, right? And so, again, Eden was a garden. It had everything. The temptations uh, uh, centered around food. See, Jesus here goes out to a desert, a wilderness, where he's fasting, where he doesn't have any food. It's a little bit harder even for Jesus, this temptation. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter, Satan, came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And once again, Satan, like Adam and Eve, doesn't come threatening violence, doesn't come threatening physical harm to Jesus, doesn't come in some display of power and swords and, and when we think of war, no. He comes subtly and he even says, he says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, questioning his identity off the bat here, right? If you are the son of God, right? If you are the one who God really loves, if you are the one who moments earlier when, God, when he came out of the water from his baptism, God said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. Like if you're really that person, then do this, right? So we see the, sneaky, the, the sneakiness um, of Satan here. Command these stones to become loaves of bread. Right? This is kind of the, the temptation uh, to provide um, everyday provision for us, the provision that God provides. He's saying, hey, if you can do this, then, then show me how you can make stones become bread because everybody needs bread to live on, right? But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He quotes scripture there. Now, there's, there's, there's something behind quoting scripture, right? It's not scripture has just some magical thing where you could just throw scripture out and that's it, right? He does quote scripture, but it's more of what's going on inside of Jesus, right? He's trusting God. He's trusting. He says, no, 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 I, I don't need to do that. I don't need to make stones become bread because that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is loving God, is trusting God, right? Is, li- is living by the words of God, Jesus says. The verse five. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, so really high, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Again, Satan quoting scripture here, right? He's pretty smart. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Okay, so kind of testing Jesus' power, his showmanship, his ability to, to make a scene, to do something, to have like a wow factor here. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written. You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Quoting scripture back against. He, he doesn't need to test God. He trusts God. I need to test God to make sure that he really loves me by jumping off something high. No, I trust him because he's my father. I trust him because he, I, 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 I know him. I've spent time with him. In 8, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I give you 
if you will fall down and worship me. Right, tapping into to really our need for power and control, wanting more influence, wanting more notoriety, wanting more success, everything that we would be tempted by as well. Once again, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. See, unlike Adam and Eve, who, who didn't trust God, when they were tempted by Satan, Jesus trusted God fully. This battle he fought with Satan, the spirit took him out to the wilderness intentionally to fight. It's almost like, like, like God was training him. God was preparing him. Early on in his ministry, sends him out into the wilderness to, to train, to spar with the devil, if you want to use that metaphor. But Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, trusted God in his obedience to God's word. Saying, no, no, I don't need to do these things because I trust God. And here it is in his word. And then it says there at the end that the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And I think of this like uh, analogy of like a boxing match after when, when the round's over and fighter comes back to the corner and his, his, ever, his, his team get around him and they're, they're like ministering. That, that's the, the image I get. After the fight, Jesus is done. He's sitting on a stool resting and the angels are ministering to him. He won the battle. He won the fight. Right? And we can take this into our day-to-day life on really two accounts. One, we have the ability to fight our temptation. Right? We have the ability to say no to sin, to Satan. We have that ability. Now, will we always choose God over our sin and our flesh? No, we won't. But we see this story and realize like we know someone who did. We know someone that said no to sin and yes to God every single time. And that, that's good news. And the other good news of this is that we have an example, right? We have an example on how Jesus did this, right? That, that it can be done. That we don't have to give in when things get tough for us, when we're, we're tempted. We don't have to give in to temptation. We don't ever have to do that, okay? Because Jesus is the one, is our model here. And how he did it and how he went about it, right? Okay, so look at death. So life, death. Let's go back to 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 knowing that you were ransomed right, from the futile ways inherited by your, from your forefathers. And we've seen that, and it's the forefathers. He's talking about the, the, the forefathers of the Jewish people. And we've seen that in the Old Testament, right? They're futile. They're awful. The ways that they try to go about flourishing. He's like, we've, we've, we, uh, Jesus ransomed you from those things. He rescued you from those things. He redeemed you from having to look to those things to save you, to, to give you joy and to give you freedom. Not with perishable things. So he wants to make sure that they see, like, hey, he didn't redeem you through the, through the typical sacrificial system. He didn't redeem you through a golden calf that you made out of, out of gold and melted down, right? They, they would have obviously remembered that story from their forefathers, right? He didn't save you with those things, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot, blemish or spot. Now, I love this description, really, of the gospel, this, this description, because it's using this, this loaded sacrificial language. He uses the precious blood of Christ. Again, they would have heard blood of Christ. They would have gone straight back to the sacrificial system when the blood of an animal needed to be sacrificed for, on behalf of God's people. And then the lamb, without blemish or spot. It seems weird that this doesn't make sense to us without any Old Testament background. 
Why would Jesus be called a lamb without blemish or spot? That doesn't make sense unless you go back to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. When the Passover especially, when they were to find a lamb, right, a young lamb without spot or blemish to sacrifice for Passover, right? This is a direct reference back to the Passover lamb, but really the whole sacrificial system. Right? So he wants the, the Jewish people to remember the sacrificial system when he writes these things. Once and for all, Jesus lays down his life for us, for sinful human beings, for his people. The scriptures say he offered himself as a propitiation, which that's a big theological word, meaning he offered himself as a gift to God, like a gift on the altar himself as a propitiation to God, taking the wrath of God upon himself. Absorbing the punishment that an animal uh, absorbed in the Old Testament. He took that upon himself, just like the animals did. Again, they would have been making these connections when Peter writes this. But But the difference here is that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. After Jesus, no more blood sacrifices have to be made. The sacrificial system ends with the one true sacrifice in Jesus, because he is the true perfect lamb. That's why on the cross, one of his last words was this, it is finished, it's over, it's done, it is finished. Like all this system of trying to earn your way to God and coming before me and and, and coming before God and sacrificing animals so you can remain in right relationship with him, it's over because I am dying for sinful human beings to end that system. And then life, death, and then his resurrection. If you keep reading in this passage, Peter says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Verse 21 is key. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So God raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God. So one of the main reasons why God raised Jesus from the dead, so that we would see that Jesus was in fact not just the perfect lamb, but he was actually God. Like God could actually accept that sacrifice because he was God. So we know that when we're thinking of Jesus, we're worshiping Jesus, we're learning about Jesus, he is in fact God. He's the only person who's ever come back from the dead and not died again. Jesus is that person. He's the only person who's ever done that. So that our faith and hope are in God. See, Jesus is the true and better king. He was raised from the dead. David died, he was dead. Solomon died, he was dead. These kings, these great kings in the line of Israel and God's people, right? That our hope and faith may be in God and nothing else, right? And imagine what they would have thought about the whole sacrificial system ending too, right? Over and over, year after year, festival after festival, they had to go buy the animal, which was really, really expensive, often travel to the temple to make the sacrifices. And then the process of actually kind of killing that animal and the blood and everything. And just, it was a mess. And I think God wanted them to remember that it is a mess. Your sin is a mess. What I have to do to overcome your sin is a mess. It's giving up my only begotten son to die a horrific death on the cross. The penalty for sin is a mess. And then with the ending of the sacrificial system and Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice, And no more sacrifices have to be made to to make a pathway for us to God. 
What, what, just another layer of good news if we can understand the Old Testament and the sacrificial system we have, like they would have heard First Peter, Peter in his book of First Peter. Now, life, death, resurrection, the true and better king has come to redeem us, right? Now, the ball's in our court. We must respond. This is the good news, right? This is news. This happened. It's done. It's finished. Now it's our job to respond. And I think that's for anybody here in the room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're not. When you hear this, when you hear the good news, we must respond. So I want us to walk us through kind of a process to help us respond. And I want to go back and review some of the places that we've been in this series. So we started off with creation, right? Genesis 1 and 2. And we answered this question, what is your purpose? Right? What's the purpose of humanity? That's one of the questions Genesis 1 and 2 are answering. Right? So on one side, if you look at the Bible, the purpose is to honor and glorify God by being fruitful, for, by, 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 by obeying the mandate that he's given us. Be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth and subdue it. To say it another way, to extend Eden. To make Eden this place where humans are, 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 are in communion with God and push Eden out as far as we can. That was the mandate given to Adam and Eve to humans in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if we miss that, if we say, uh, if we look at what, if we answer that question differently, what is our purpose? Um, we'll say, well, it's about being happy oftentimes. Or it's about God made us so that we would be happy, period. So we need to, we need to get, to kind of find our inner self, find, find this innocence that we used to have before all this junk came into our, our world or my life, and we need to go back to making ourselves happy, okay? It's another way to kind of read Genesis 1 and 2 in a um, really unbiblical way. Next step, you have the fall, right? Genesis 3. It's answering the question, what is the problem, right? Biblically, the problem is sin, right? Adam and Eve sinned. Sin came into the world messed everything up. The world is broken, messed up, and fractured. And when we are born, we are born into this world and we are born with sin. It's what theologians call original sin. We have that sin that Adam and Eve had. That's the problem the way the Bible would explain it. Now, we can also, though, we can define that the problem differently. We can say, because it's about my happiness, really the problem is anything that's going to get in the way of my happiness, could be um, restrictions put on our life, maybe the family we were brought up in, maybe bad experiences, maybe externally given identities that we don't like, maybe some stuff from tradition, stuff from restrictions from religion. Now, some of those things are bad, right? Some of those things could be major problems, but they're not the main problem, right? They're not the main problem. It's not just the problem because it's getting in the way of my happiness. The issue foundationally is sin. But if the problem is a, it's, it's, it's robbing my happiness or my joy, uh, the solution begins to be, well, what's, what's going what's gonna to make me happy? What are the things that's getting in the way of my happiness? Those are the things that need to be stopped. Whatever's hard in life, whatever's keeping me from achieving that, kind of that, 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 that happiness that I want in my inner self, that is the enemy that needs to be stopped. Now we have next, what is the solution? And that's what we've talked about today. What is the solution to the problem? Now, if the solution um, over here is to chase pleasure, to do whatever we want to do, to, whatever, to do whatever we think is right, to kind of make judgments about right and wrong, good and evil, and say, I'm going to do whatever I think is right, whatever I 
I need to do to make me happy in that moment. And then if anyone tries to get in the way of that, to being my true self, to being what may, really makes me happy, they're the enemy. They need to be stopped at all costs if they are getting in the way of my happiness. So you see that if you define the problem in a certain way, the solution is going to be different. The solution's not going to be Jesus. The solution's going to be, let's get all the stuff out of the way in my life that's actually weighing me down. And oftentimes, if we're chasing pleasure, and if we're just chasing that fleeting happiness, it turns, we, we, we turn into pure consumers, right? We just consume things. Whatever's going to make us happy, whatever's going to make us feel good, whatever's going to numb our experiences and our pain from the past, so we consume and we consume and we consume. And marketers know this, right? Marketers aren't dumb, right? They know what our deepest longing and need is as a society, right? It's to be happy. It's to be successful. It's to be beautiful. It's to, to be free to do whatever we want to do. That's why when we see commercials, right? They're never about the things that are maybe what are really, really best for us. It's, they're about the things and they're, they're, they're wanting us to be attracted to the things that will make us happy in the moment. Again, if you misdefine the problem, then you're going to look for different solutions, right? And when this view comes into church, it becomes a problem, right? Maybe even some of us as followers of Jesus have fallen for um, what the solution really is to our problems, right? Following Jesus can mean, hey, coming to church, right? Because that's a good thing, right? But we're not going to get too close to people because we can't really be known. We don't want people to know the true us, how we really are. So we're going to kind of keep our distance, right? Because it's about being happy, right? It's, not, it's about not doing difficult things. So we're going to stay on the fringes, right? And if, if it's a consumption-based thing, then we're going to go to a church that meets my needs. Whatever needs I have, we're going to go to churches that meet my needs, and once the church stops meeting needs, then there's probably going to be the exit from that church. There's probably another church around the corner that you'll try again to meet your needs. Again, because it's about chasing happiness, about finding your needs being met. Because the problem isn't sin inside of you. It's something else that you're trying to chase with pleasure or consumption. Now, the solution is to put our trust and faith in Jesus, right? Dying to ourselves, right? forgetting about ourselves, living for him in faith and in trust and following the way that's going to lead to the flourishing and blessing and, and being able to grow spiritually where true freedom and joy is found, not the fleeting pleasures that often we are faced with in our world through consuming things, right? So instead of consuming our way to happiness, we find our happiness and joy in Jesus. And if that happens, we can let our guards down. We can be fully known without being afraid of rejection. We can truly give our lives away for the sake of others, risking, risking um, ridicule, risking rejection for the sake of others. Because, again, we're not looking for just happiness and my own needs being met. I'm submitting myself to the Lordship of Jesus, and now I'm about his will and his mission. So we can actually love other people well. We can be freed to love others and not be thinking about ourselves all the time. And we can be about God's mission, seeing people who are far from God reconciled to God. People who don't have a relationship to Jesus coming into a relationship with Jesus. If we see Jesus as the solution, not um, just trying to, trying to, trying to uh, put, put a Band-Aid on a wound from our childhood. Now that may be important. That may be important to deal with. You may have had some bad experiences. 
but we still come to Jesus to have those things met and come to Jesus to have those things healed and not try to medicate through consumption or some other form. See, the covenant here, the word we used last week a lot, covenant, God always upholds his side of the covenant, always. All throughout the scriptures, God is faithful. God's people were the ones who were faithless, who were unfaithful. And we see on the cross, when the true king comes, God kept one side of the covenant. But who kept the other side of the covenant? For people, Jesus, right? Jesus held the other side of the covenant. So God holds his side of the covenant, making a way, providing a way for people to be redeemed. Who held the other side of the covenant? Jesus, right? We weren't involved in that, right? Jesus brought us into that through his life, death, and resurrection. So we must respond. We must respond to the true king. There's only really two choices. We pledge our allegiance to the king or we pledge our allegiance to something else. There's only two choices, right? After hearing this, I mean, he is the king. He is the true king. Either we love him and we're devoted to him or we're going to devote, be devoted to something else, right? Let's look at verse 13. This is going back to Peter here. I think he gives us three things here that I think are three things we can kind of grab onto to ask, well, what do I, what do, I do from here? Where do I go from here? He says, therefore, these are important, right? And he, you can feel like the intensity behind, I think, what Peter's saying here. Peter's an intense dude. We see that from the Gospels as well. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, right? So get ready. Get your mind ready, right? Know what's coming into your mind, right? Knowing what's forming your mind. What are you taking in through your eyes, through your ears? What's shaping you? What are you, what are you just maybe mindlessly kind of going through your day consuming that's actually forming you? Be aware of those things. Next, being sober-minded or being self-controlled. Again, kind of this weighty description of what he wants us to do. Be sober-minded. Know what's important. Right? Know your priorities. Know, know who the king is. Know who's redeemed you. Know who's ransomed you. And allow that to kind of help you be intentional, be focused, not to be tossed and, and turned and, and thrown around by the next thing happening in our culture or happening in our world. No, it's being grounded. It's having self-control. It's being sober-minded about Jesus, the gospel, the truth, and what he's doing in the world. And lastly, he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Set your hope. It's kind of a weird idea, right? Well, what does that look like to set your hope? Well, first off, it means to, to, to focus on Jesus, right? At minimum, it means focus on Jesus. Set your eyes upon him. Keep your eyes on the things of heaven, not on the things of the earth, Paul tells us, right? It's to set your hope fully on the grace. Set your hope fully on the gospel. Set your eyes fully on Jesus and the things of him, right? This is how we prepare our minds, this is how we become sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace. Like, what are you setting your hope on now? Do, do that inventory, right? Think about that. Where is your hope, right? Is your hope in something else, or is, it the, is your hope in the king? And, we'll go to, and, and the reason why we have values at the church, really, I want to go through our values really quickly just to remi- as a reminder. We haven't done that in a few months. Um, because this is the goal, right, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to worship him, to adore him, to follow him, to grow up into him. And so we think that the, these five things are the things to focus on. So it would, be, it would be worth going through these really quickly to be reminded of how we do this, right? Number one's gospel-centered, right? 
Right? Gospel center. We center our lives on the word of God and on the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? How do we set our minds on the grace of God? It's by being focused on the gospel, the good news. The good news about this king, this true and better king coming to redeem us. So we don't have to, to, to look to other kings to save us. Number two, uh, being in formative community. Being a part of formative community. Like, I can't continue to keep my eyes focused on Jesus without people around me. And neither can you. You need other people in your life pointing you back to Jesus, reminding you of the gospel. When life gets hard, reminding you of the grace that you have in Jesus, right? And that those communities shape us, and they form us, and they challenge us, and they help heal us. They listen to us. They, they accept the real you. They, they hear your baggage and don't freak out and point you to Jesus and pray for you and help you walk through the baggage that you have that's keeping you from finding freedom and joy in Jesus. Um, I will say that the, 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 the plug for the gospel community leaders training, um, I would encourage all of you to come to that. That's open to anybody, right, to learn how to live in gospel community. Hopefully all of you are, especially a member here, we want you to aspire to leadership. What if you, what if you led a, a formative community, which we call gospel communities one day, right? Maybe you, maybe you should think about that. So come to the training. It's never too early to get trained um, to be able to do this. The third one, everyday discipleship, right? We know, love, and obey Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. This is an everyday, moment-by-moment thing, right? It's not, it's not these, these super high things and super low things. It's, it's moment-by-moment, day-after-day, week-after-week, month-after-month, year-after-year. This is the path to formation, right? To just constantly keep our eyes on Jesus in the mundane, Next, living missionally. We join, God, we join in God's renewing work by loving our neighbors through gospel proclamation, right? Again, if, if, if we're not consumed with ourself, we're better off being able to be about his mission and extending his kingdom and talking about how awesome the king is and not posturing ourselves to make ourselves look awesome or trying to, get the, the, trying to look a certain way so people will think highly of us instead of being honest with people and trusting that the, the acceptance of our king is enough to be able to be honest with people, right? And that's even people who don't know Jesus and don't know God. We can fully free to be a part of God's mission. And the last one's planting healthy churches. And from a, from a really individual or family-by-family family level, that just means really it's, 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 it's at this idea of multiplication, right? Are you pouring into people? Are you using your gifts to multiply ministry in the church? Are you looking for someone to mentor, right? Are you, are you growing up into the kind of person who can make disciples, who can, we can see people grow up in their faith and more gospel communities can be started and that'll lead to more churches maybe being planted, okay? These are the things to focus on to set our eyes on Jesus. We've tried to make it simple to think about these things, okay? So I want to leave us with this. I want us to remember that God is faithful to keep his covenant. He always does. And even in the new covenant, God keeps one side of the covenant. Jesus keeps the other side of the covenant. Let's remember that and set our eyes on him. Let's pray. Father, I as always so thankful for your word, so thankful that You've revealed yourself to us, and especially in the Old Testament, we see you revealing yourself oftentimes in, in these events that we see, and we've covered several of these events in the last couple of weeks, and I pray that we would connect these events to what is happening in our day-in-to-day-out lives and seeing the gospel through those things, that because you fight our battles for us, like David did, like you've already fought the greatest battle and won, 
so we can trust you and trust that you are the true and better king, that we don't have to look to other authorities in our life for validation or to, for acceptance or for power or for control. We can trust that you are our authority and you are a gentle king and a lowly king and one who calls us to come to him and that your, 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 your yoke is easy and your burden is light and you call us to come. So I pray that we would come to you this morning. We would choose you as king over all the other potential kings in our life. But we need help. We need your spirit to help us do that. So come. Help us now and help us as we leave this place. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.